welcoming us into the church for uh, what we just did, uh, me being installed as an elder. I do take it as a privilege. I did not take it lightly. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, uh, Richard, uh, Rick, Richard, Josiah, all the elders. I am so thankful, and I really am honored to be counted among you guys. It's, uh, I'm excited about it. I also want to thank Danny for being here and for uh, being part of the installation. I want to thank my friend Aaron, who was also very instrumental in me being here. Uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of my family. We, I cannot express how overwhelmed we are um, by the love and care that you guys have shown us in just these few months. And so thank you. And we cannot wait to see what the Lord is going to do in the years to come. With that said... So we pray before we look at the word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, thankful for everything. Uh, Lord, we, we, we are thank you, thankful for so many reasons. But at this particular moment, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the fact that you revealed yourself to us through your word. And that this morning I get the privilege of uh, preaching it. Lord, I pray uh, that as I proclaim your word, Lord, that uh, if there is anything that comes out of my own understanding that does not align to the Bible, Lord, I pray that that would fall down and that would be forgotten. You know my heart is to be faithful to your word, and I have worked my best uh, to do so. And so I pray, Father, that you uh, would be the one that uh, moves uh, through me, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be the one that guides me. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're in 1 Samuel 11, and uh, it's been a little bit since we were in 1 Samuel. It's been a few weeks. Last week we had uh, Easter. Prior to Easter, we had Loon, who visited from, um, uh, from Brandon, Florida. And then before that, we had the beloved Alex Bowman uh, preach the word. And, and let me ask you guys a, a question. Aren't you thankful for the amount of faithful men that can come and preach the word, men that would take a week off their congregation just to come and bless us with, not themselves, but with the word of God. And so, anyway, so it's been a little while since we were in First Samuel. You may remember the last time we were in First Samuel, Tim taught from First Samuel 10. And, um, and so what I figured I would start this morning by catching us up, giving us a recap, a little previously in First Samuel, if you will, uh, so that we know where we are. Uh, and so, uh, you may remember last time Tim preached, he talked about chapter 10, but before chapter 10, let's see, Tim, Tim has preached chapter 11. Before chapter 10, a couple of chapters before, in chapter 8, uh, you may remember that the people of Israel came to Samuel and asked for a king. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a king. God had promised a king from Genesis. He had, become, he had promised a deliverer, a king. And yet the problem is that the people of Israel ask for a king so that they may be like the other nations. So God uh, chooses Saul and Samuel. Um, and um, Well, God chooses Saul and Samuel in what I think was a pretty awkward ceremony, <laughs> anoints the king anoint Saul as a king. You may remember that even if Saul was physically imposing, he was tall, a head taller than everybody else, handsome, good looking, whatever. He was physically imposing and yet he was really timid about stepping into his role as a king. 
And uh, he gets to the point, he goes so far as to hiding from everyone behind the baggage, which is kind of funny, but weird. And so as you read through 1 Samuel 10, it really is a bit of a cringy read, if I can be honest with you. It's super awkward. It's what in Spanish we would call, we would call pena ajena, which means when you're like borrowing someone else's shame, right? You're like embarrassed on someone else's behalf. And so there's a lot of pena ajena whenever you read uh, chapter 10. And so you see God chooses Saul. Samuel gathers all the tribes of Israel. He he brings them together to anoint him as as king, and they have a big ceremony. And at the moment he's about to anoint him, Samuel turns to look for Saul. He's like, wait, where is Saul? He's gone. He disappeared. So naturally, as one does, Samuel inquires of the Lord, you know, and the Lord answers answers to him with what I imagine to be a divine equivalent of a facepalm. He says, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) So they go, they get Saul from out of the baggage, and they anoint him as king. Cool, right? Like, how much confidence can you get from that? Now, the text closes by telling us that among the people was a group of worthless fellows who were grumbling and saying, how can this man save us? Now, as you read it, if you're like me, I'm like, you know, I kind of agree with these guys. Yeah. And yet the Bible calls them worthless fellas. Now, I would say that the reason that, I mean, I, it is my understanding from this passage, the, the reason that the Bible calls them worthless fellas is not because they had questions about Saul, but because in their heart they were grumbling against God because he was God who chose Saul. And in their hearts they're thinking, you know what, were I in charge, I would have chosen better than God did. And that is why they were considered worthless fellows. Now, this is not the point of the story, but I do think we should keep an eye on this temptation to think that we would do better than God with our life, with our finances, with our whatever. We are always tempted to think that we may do better than God if we, if we were planning our life. And so let's keep an eye on that. Now, After this awkward situation, the author quickly moves to the story of chapter 11, which is where we are today. And so I want you to see, the first thing that I want you to notice this morning is that without a Savior, all we can expect is certain death and slavery. In chapter chapter 11, I'm sorry, verses 1 to 3, it says this. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So in this passage, we saw a description of a situation that may sound familiar to us. A powerful ruler from a powerful nation decides to invade and bully a much smaller nation. The people of uh, Jabesh Gilead. Does that ring a bell, anyone? Now, there's a lot of historical background that I can't get into right now, but there are at least two points that I do think are worth mentioning that would help us understand the story a little better. Number one, there was a really close connection between uh, Jabesh Gilead, the people of Jabesh Gilead, and the tribe of Benjamin, which is the tribe where Saul came from. There was, years before this, uh, there was a war 
in which Jairus Gilead did not participate to defend the Benjaminites. And the Benjaminites actually had a huge loss. They lost a bunch of people. And so the people from Jairus Gilead sent 400 of their young women to marry the men of the Benjaminites. So as you can imagine, uh, Saul, it is not crazy to believe that Saul probably had family in Jabesh Gilead. He probably had a family that came from Jabesh Gilead. So this was actually pretty serious. The second thing that I think is important to, for us to know is that the land where Jabesh, I mean, the land of Jabesh Gilead belonged to the ancestors of Nahash at some point in history, which is why he felt entitled to them. Again, kind of sounds like what's going on in Ukraine today, doesn't it? So a bully... Nahash, whose name actually translates to snake, which seems like a very fitting title, is threatening to invade the land of Jabesh Gilead. And though we don't know much about Nahash, we learn from this passage that he was a cruel, cruel man. The people of Jabesh find themselves in a dire situation, like a cat toying with a mouse. When the men of Jabesh offer to make a treaty with them, Nahash tells them that he'll only agree to a treaty or a covenant if he can first gouge... I'm sorry. I'm about to sneeze. If he can first gouge the right eye. Isn't that sick? He tells him, sure, we'll make a treaty, but only if you let me uh, gouge out all the right eyes of all the men of your tribe. Which is insane. Now, this for this to make a little bit more sense, because I mean it's cruel, you know, in its face, but for us to have a more historical context, the reason he was doing that is because at the time, um, they, when, when people went to war, they had these formations where they had these shields that were interlocking. And these shields uh, would cover a man's left eye. And so you could only see with your right eye. And so by gouging the right eye, what he was doing was basically making them vulnerable and making them very uh, defenseless. By gouging the right eye, Nahash was not just humiliating them, but making them unfit for battle making them great candidates to become slaves. You see, the people of Jabesh Gilead were in a desperate situation. So they said to Nahash, give us seven days respite. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. You see, thankfully, they knew they were in a bad place. You know what's worse than being in a bad place? Not knowing that you're in a bad place. And they recognized that they were in a dire situation. They recognized that they needed salvation. They knew that left to themselves, all they could expect was certain death or slavery. Church, why are we talking about this today? Because you see, before Christ rescued us, you and I were in the same situation. We were in desperate need of a Savior. We too had an enemy. A snake who, in the words of Peter, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, you and I need a Savior. Not unlike the people of Jabez Gilead, if we were left to ourselves, we would be as good as dead. Without a Savior, the best we can expect is slavery to the things of this world and ultimately eternal death. Those that don't know Jesus are in a more desperate situation than the people in this story. Thankfully, the people in this story were aware of their need of a Savior, and they acted on that need. They asked for help. The problem, though, is that many today are not aware of their need of salvation. Are you guys familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? 
Some of you may be, uh, but if you aren't, the Dunning-Kruger effect is what psychologists call a cognitive bias, in which people think they are smarter than they truly are. In simple terms, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that the more ignorant you are on a topic, the more confident you are talking about it. Or the opposite is basically that the more you know, the more you know how much you don't know, right? Which is why you have all these people that are now experts in every topic known to man, right? Uh, people just retired from being epidemiologists to becoming you know, experts in the Russian history and Ukraine conflict, right? Uh, and, and, and they will talk to you with all certainty about topics that they don't really know much. So... Why am I saying this? Why am I, ask, why am I talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect? The reason I'm talking about it is because I think we often do the same exact thing, but spiritually. There are many of us who, because they don't know God, they don't realize how much they need Him. The less we know about God, the less we realize how much we are in need of Him. Just like that one aunt or uncle around the Thanksgiving dinner who seemed to know it all, Right? And who have everything figured out. <laughs> and we often act in the same way with the things of God. We are so ignorant to the things of God that we are confidently, some, some are confidently marching in their way to eternal death because they think they have life figured out. Because they think that on their own, they can do it. <laughs> Let me ask you this morning. Do you understand how much need you have of a Savior? Almost, uh, well, do you realize that without a savior king, all you can expect is slavery to this world and ultimately eternal death? If you do not know Jesus Christ, the greatest king savior, you are in a dear condition, in a dire condition. You are in trouble. Are you this morning confidently marching your way to hell, thinking you're good on your own? I'm aware that this sounds a little heavy-handed. I know that if you're here for the first time, this may sound a little heavy-handed talking about hell. Uh, but may I suggest that the best thing that the Bible, one of the best things that the Bible does for us, other than pointing us to God, is that it shows us the need that we have for God. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I just got allergies randomly. <laughs> uh, if anyone has tissue, I would really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I may just take a second. <laughs> well, you don't know awkward until you've blown your nose in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you fully, we're family now. <laughs> Anyways, I am aware that talking about hell, talking about the idea that people are marching confidently on their way to hell may sound a little heavy-handed. But you know, there's this scene in the office where the branch manager, the great Michael Scott, uh, <clears throat> realizes that their branch is in danger of being downsized or completely shut down. And then... He talks to the camera. Michael talks to the camera, and he says these words. He says, am I going to tell them? No, I'm not going to tell them. I don't see the point of that. As a doctor, you don't need a patient if they had cancer. You don't need to tell a patient. You wouldn't tell a patient if they had cancer. 
Now, the reason this quote is hilarious is because this is the exact opposite of what a good doctor would do. A doctor that doesn't tell you you're sick is not a good doctor. And a savior that doesn't tell you you need to be saved is not a good savior. And a pastor that doesn't tell you the truth because he's afraid of offending you should not be behind a pulpit. Church, we are in need of a Savior, and unless we recognize our need of a Savior, we are marching confidently to hell. Which leads me to my second point this morning, and it's that God, our Savior, hears a cry of his people. Let's read verses 4 through 6. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the, behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people uh, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. So what happens here is that the, main, the, the messengers finally reach Gibeah, which is the city where King Saul was. And this, in, this scene is so important because, as you may remember, in chapter 10, there were a lot of doubts on whether Saul could actually be a good king. Not only doubts in the hearts of those worthless fellows, but even in, in Saul's heart himself. He questioned whether he could be a good king or not. So the way Saul reacts to this situation is really a make-or-break situation in his reign. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, at all with Scripture, if you're familiar at all with Scripture, you would know that Saul is not in the end a good king. He is actually a pretty terrible king. But in this situation, I believe is the only time during his reign that Saul actually acts in a way that foreshadows Christ, our better king and our better savior. The author tells us that Saul hears a cry of the people, and in that very moment, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he is immediately moved to action. Now, once again, I think this is the only instance when we see in Scripture where Saul acts in a way that is consistent with a godly king. But because the author specifically tells us that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, the way Saul acts, I think, says more about God than about Saul himself. You see, one of the things that we see time and again in Scripture is that God listens to the cry of His people. If you read throughout the Old Testament, you will find that no matter how often Israel rebelled against God, He always heard their cry and came forth to save them. And because our God is immutable, because He does not change, this remains true today. And this should be a source of comfort for us today. I want you to hear this. If you cry out to the Lord today, He will hear you. You're not alone. If you're far from God, cry out to Him today, and He will hear you. If you are sad, cry out to God, and He will comfort you. If you're in sin, cry out to Him. Repent, and He will forgive you. If you're hurting today, cry out to Him, and He will bring you healing and comfort. No matter what you're going through today, I want you to know that you are not alone. And God is not unsympathetic to the cry of His children. Now, in the case of Saul, when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, it was a one-time thing. 
For those of us who are in Christ, though, the same Spirit doesn't rush upon us temporarily, but He dwells in us. You see, it is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that empowers us and enables us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul would put it. It is the Holy Spirit in us that enables us to fight sin, that enables us to walk in a manner worthy of God. If the Holy Spirit is in you and with you, and if you're in Christ, He is, it is He that enables you to live in a way that glorifies the Father. Let's keep reading. I want us to see verses 7 through 9. And here I want you to see that our Savior promised salvation. Verse 7 says this, He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. This is talking about Saul. And sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus uh, shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. And I want you to notice the certainty in the words of Saul. He says, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. After hearing the cries of his people, Saul springs into action. He immediately recruits a huge army and sends messengers with the promise that salvation was coming. Now the Old Testament is filled with countless promises of a Savior King that would deliver the people of Israel, that would deliver the people of God. And God didn't just make a promise, but He also fulfilled and executed that promise in Christ Jesus. But before I move on, I think it is important to point out that just as Saul is moved by injustice and evil, so should we, the people of God, be moved into action by the evil and injustice around us. If the Spirit of God that rushed on Saul lives in us, we too will not be unmoved by the need of our neighbor. I want you to notice two things um, about Saul. He was moved into action into two main ways. First of all, he got to work. He immediately recruited an army and went to war. There were no empty words or what we would call slacktivism today, which is when you think you are doing something because you said something on social media. As Christians, we ought to get to work. We are not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And we we are only hearers and not doers. The Bible tells us we are deceiving ourselves. This reminds me of a quote by Justin Whitmill Early, who said this. He says, what the fabric of justice, and I've, heard, I've, I've used this before, so I, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's so beautiful. He says, when the fabric of justice is torn, people fall through the holes, usually the most vulnerable people. Weaving the fabric of justice means mending the holes for the sake of the vulnerable. But there is more. Justice as a tapestry reminds us that justice is beautiful. The tapestry of justice properly woven is something worth hanging on the wall of the world. You see, as the Holy Spirit moves in us into action, or moves us into action by loving and caring for our neighbor, we show the world the beauty of the gospel. But it doesn't end there on the things that we do for our neighbor. The second thing I want you to notice about Saul here is that he pointed people to him who brought them salvation. 
not only with his works, but also with his words. Church, if you have received this great message of salvation, shouldn't you be sharing it? We are certainly called to mend the holes in the tapestry of justice when we encounter them. But we don't do this only with our hands, but also with our mouths. Ultimately, only the bold proclamation of the word of God is ultimately going to help those around us. Now this leads me to my next point. Verses 10 through 11. And here I want you to say that our Savior didn't just promise salvation, but he delivered salvation. Verse 10 says this, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so, uh, so that not two of them were left together. So I want you to see this. Saul didn't just send the messengers with a promise of salvation, but he actually delivered salvation. What matters ultimately is not what you say or what you promise, but whether you can deliver what you promised, right? And you see, just as Saul promised salvation, we live in a world today that promises salvation everywhere. Not only can you see these promises of salvation in other religions, but you can find promises of salvation everywhere. Politicians promise you salvation and don't deliver. Money and power promises happiness and ultimate salvation, but never delivers. Diets and fads promise you a happy and a, happy and a healthy lifestyle with the promise of uh, you're saving yourself, but ultimately they fail. Hollywood promises that if you only follow your heart, you will find ultimate, ultimate fulfillment and purpose and salvation, but it never delivers. Worldly romance and relationships promises a life full of happiness, but never delivers. The world always overpromises and always underdelivers. Only in Christ can we find a true salvation, yes. a true promise that wasn't just promised, but that was fulfilled at the cross that gives us salvation and eternal life. Right. You see, Saul had a plan. He separated the army into three fronts. He attacked the Ammonites, <clears throat> and he conquered them decisively. Our salvation needed way more than just military tactics, you see. For us to be saved, only our God could devise a plan good enough that could save all who come to him. You see, only the death of Christ, the God-man, could save us. Only Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, could live the perfect life that you and I have miserably failed to live and die the death that you and I deserve because of our sin and rebellion. Our God didn't just have a plan. But as we saw on Good Friday, he delivered the salvation at the cross. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church, God had a plan. And the plan was executed at the cross. Only because of the cross of Christ do you and I have access to God. There is nothing other than the cross that can provide us access to God. 
There is nothing but the cross that can actually deliver salvation and eternal life. You see, God didn't just deliver us from an enemy. We were the enemy. And at the cross, he made us his children. He didn't just deliver us from an enemy, but he made us his enemies into family, his children. Verses 12 and 13 says this. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. I want you to hear this. Our Savior forgives those who oppose them. Who oppose them, I'm sorry. From these verses, I want to point out a couple of things. First, do you remember at the beginning of my message, I mentioned the worthless fellows who were questioning Saul's kingship? Well, as soon as Saul conquers the Ammonites, someone remembers them. The people come to Samuel pointing their fingers at these worthless fellows and asking them to be put to death. And quite honestly, reading this made me chuckle a little bit because it feels like something you would find on Twitter today, right? Sometimes we are so quick to point our fingers against those that disagree with us. And, and I want you to hear this. Not only those that disagree with us, but we point our fingers decisively and condemningly against those that oppose Christ. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm getting there, okay? It is at times, though, this sense of moral superiority that fuels the culture wars. And we end up pointing our fingers at those who oppose us with no hope of redemption. We so quickly condemn our perceived enemies when the gospel doesn't allow us to do that. At the core of the gospel is the idea that we were not saved because we were morally superior, but because God had mercy on us when we were broken, when we were in rebellion, and when we opposed Him. We, like Peter, like Peter, I'm sorry, we, like Peter, are so quick to pull the sword against those that oppose Christ, try to cut their heads off. We have our swords at their throats, aren't we? When Jesus himself would tell us to put the sword back in its place. Because he will deliver salvation. Now hear this, by this I don't mean that we shouldn't contend for the gospel. Absolutely, as believers, it is our responsibility to contend for the gospel. But we should do this redemptively. We should contend for the gospel in a manner that points people and those who oppose Jesus to salvation and not condemnation. One of the reasons we shouldn't be so quick to lash out against those that oppose Jesus is that in this story, Saul says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You see, Saul was king, and he could have killed these guys who opposed them. But instead, what did he do? He pointed them to the Lord who had worked other salvation. Church, in the same way, Jesus could have rightly condemned us, his enemies, to death. But instead, he offered us salvation. I want to pause here because, church, we are so quickly, we're, we're so quick at condemning those that we disagree with, those 
even that oppose Christ. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel. Please do so, and do so boldly. Please, the Bible calls and compels us to contend for the gospel, to stand for that which is right. I am not saying give in, give in. But as we stand for the sake of the gospel, let us do it in a manner that is redemptive, in a manner that points people to salvation and not condemnation. Church, I am telling you this because I grew up with friends that opposed the Lord now because whenever they were in the church, they didn't see a chance for redemption. They only saw when people pointed how broken they were and they pushed them away from Jesus. Let us guard ourselves from doing that. Let us guard ourselves from condemning that which Christ has paid for and will save Church, we don't get to make that call. We don't get to make that call. We get to stand boldly. We get to proclaim the gospel. We get to be faithful and to speak truth, but do so in love and with kindness in a matter that reflects your Savior. Church, let us make sure that those who reject the gospel reject it on its terms. And not because in, our, because in our lashing out, we are misrepresenting the kindness, the patience, and the steadfast love of our Savior. Which leads us to verses 14 and 15. At this point, I want you to notice that our deliverance leads us to commitment. Verse 14 and 15 say this. It says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come. Let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Church, this chapter closes with an invitation from Samuel to those who had questioned Saul's kingship. He points them to renew their commitment to the king. In the same way this morning, I want to invite you, and I want to close by pointing you to the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you this morning, is He your Savior? Maybe like the worthless fellows who mocked and questioned Saul's ability to reign, you have scoffed at Jesus. Maybe for a long time you have heard the, the story of the gospel and question its validity. Maybe you have heard it and you have ignored it. Maybe it's something that you think, well, that's something I bought into as a child. Well, you've come now to a place of questioning if Christ is really king. Questioning whether he is worth following. Can he actually deliver what he promised? If this is you, I want to invite you this morning. Will you make Jesus your king? If you are in Christ and find yourself today in a position of questioning the reality of the gospel, could I invite you with Samuel to renew your commitment to Jesus? Maybe if you're here today and you grew up in the church and have grown cold, in your faith, could I invite you with Samuel? Would you recommit 
to Jesus. Church, if you're here for the first time, I am aware of how what I just said can be perceived as harsh, heavy-handed. But I can, ask, can, can I ask you this morning, would you give us the benefit of the doubt? Would you consider that there are those that speak truth out of love, not judgment? You see, our culture tells us that those that say things that oppose what you want or think is true hate you. May I tell you this morning that the gospel compels us to speak truth in love. And so, if you have rejected Christ, if you have stiff-armed him and pushed him away for a while, may I ask you this morning, would you commit to him? Not out of judgment, but out of love. I know I don't have to convince you that you're broken. I know I don't have to convince you that even if you were to be judged by the statements that have come out of your own mouth, you would fall short. How much more are you falling short of the glory of God? I want to close this morning by praying. And if this is you, we would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Join us for tacos. They're amazing. And we'd love to talk to you about what you just heard. Now I know that you may be too shy to come to talk to the pastor. I am aware of that. It takes a lot. Would you then talk to your neighbor or to the person that invited you to church? Because you know, if they invited you to church, that's what they're doing today. They are loving you by pointing you to the one that can actually deliver you and to offer you love, salvation, and restoration. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the fact that we have a Savior. Father, we recognize that left on our own, we were dead and we needed a Savior. Heavenly Father, we come to you recognizing that we are only your children because you chose to call us and to deliver us. Not because we were savable, not because we're better than anyone, but because you love us. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here that is far from you, would you bring them to your fault today? If there is anyone here this morning that is just asking questions about you, would you compel them to give their lives to you today? Father, I pray for those who, like the worthless fellas in this passage, question your wisdom, question the king that you put in place. Father, those that that are maybe asking those questions, Father, would you receive them today as your children, as they confess their need for you and they repent of their sins? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you will be glorified in our midst this morning.